Grant Palmer's book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, was published in 2002, just as the internet was beginning to revolutionize our view of Mormon history. This was a world before social media. Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't drop out of Harvard to start Facebook for two more years. Wikipedia was just a baby. There were no podcasts and no blogger knackle. Most of us paid by the minute for internet access, and the most popular website in the world was still America Online. You've got mail. But even as historical information has become easier to find and understand, Grant Palmer's contribution remains valuable. His journey away from belief in the religion he loves wasn't easy. It's the hardest thing that ever happened in my life. And, and the fact of the matter is that we have families that are being torn up, and this will go through much of the church. I'm Paul Malin, and this is The Mormon Alchemist, a podcast that relies on the best content in progressive Mormonism to produce short, shareable episodes. This episode features John DeLynn's conversation with Grant Palmer on The Mormon Stories podcast. You can find all four hours of the original interview and support Mormon Stories at mormonstories.org. I think you just tell the truth and let the consequences follow. Stay with us for a glimpse at the journey and motivation behind one of the new Mormon history's most influential authors. So what was your experience uh, in the church growing up? Did you have a good experience? I, I grew up in Salt Lake City. Uh, all my ancestors on all sides, there are four, five, or six generations. Uh, some of them go back to Nauvoo. And my parents were, were, were very, very orthodox in every sense of the way. And I grew up that way in a very strict uh, uh, upbringing. I think a lot of who I am uh, was the encouragement I received from the church. I served in the Central Atlantic States Mission, which is in uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and uh, I really bloomed on a mission. But towards the end of my mission, and I only had two or three months left, they introduced a plan called Baptist. Fam. And uh, my own belief is that my stake president, who had done a marvelous job, and, and now my mission president, a potion, had done a marvelous job. Somehow he, he got carried away. I don't know if he, he wanted to be a general authority or something, but he extended his mission six months, and uh, that's when the, the wild times really began. We had missionaries that would make up uh, signs of the devil with a pitchfork on one side and Jesus smiling at the other, and they'd say to kids, whose side are you on? And, uh, right. and they'd say, Jesus said, well, you've got to get baptized, and then baptize them without parental permission, just right up, turn it in. So when Marky e. Peterson came out midway through this uh, this extension of the mission president's term, he, he got upset real quick and sent the missionary mission president home early. <laughs> but but it wasn't your sense that this is something the church presidency or the apostles of the Quorum of the Twelve sanctioned? Not at all. In fact, my uncle, Mickey Hart, wrote songs, and Joseph Fielding Smith's wife, Jesse Evans Smith, used to come up uh, to his house, which is two doors up uh, there on Lambourne Avenue from me. This is Joseph Fielding Smith. Joseph Fielding Smith. But I remember my mother saying, uh, finally to him, says, you know, my son Grant is... Uh, in the Central Atlantic States mission, and uh, he says there's some irregularities going on back there with how we're doing baptism. He looked at him and says, yeah, I know. We've got to start sending out more doctors as mission presidents and less salesmen, <laughs> <laughs> which struck me as very funny. When when did you uh, join uh, CES? Was that uh, in the middle of your graduate work or after? Well, I was, I, I was so infused with a missionary spirit. I mean, I think I carried the missionary spirit like uh, eight, ten years after I came home. I, I was very uh, devoted uh, and uh, dedicated to that, and uh, it got me thinking about I should go into CES uh, because of this, and that's what I eventually did. 
I actually started in New Zealand in, uh, let's see, 1967 I arrived in New Zealand. And I actually went there. I was hired by the church to teach uh, history, British Empire history, and then moved into the religion department. I I just have to ask this. At the time, did you teach or believe that the, the Maoris were Lamanites? Oh, very definitely. And so did they. They were very proud of that. They called themselves Lamanites. Oh, very much so. And you taught it as part of the curriculum? Very much so, yes. Okay. Do, do you look back with fondness on that time? Very much so, and I related very well to the students. And uh, one of the things that uh, people probably don't know about me, I've got a little of the reformer in me. I mean, I like to make change, and uh, and hopefully for the better. I've always been this way. Uh, when I first went there, only 15% of the, the males in the school wanted to go on a mission, and so I... I came up with a plan, ran it by the headmaster, that we take our best students and have them go out with full-time missionaries. And uh, I think Rulon Cravens was the mission president. He liked it. He talked to Howard W. Hunter, and he approved it, even though missionaries were not to have non-missionaries in their vehicles. He says, do it. And within six months, we turned that around and were 85% of those young men now wanted to go on a mission just by having splits with the full-time missionaries in the, in the Temple View Hamilton area. And it was, it was very gratifying. Now tell me, let's just talk briefly about you know, what, what it was like being a seminary institute teacher in the 70s. Did you get a sense that, you know, 72 to 82 with Leonard Arrington and Church History Department, that that was an exciting time for church history? Were you plugged into the magazine articles and the books that were being published? Yes, I wasn't totally immersed in it, but I was certainly interested in it. And I remember going to lunch with Leonard Arrington. Uh, and of course, I had three, almost three degrees in history, so I was interested in history. <laughs> You know, what was it like to be in it now that you're looking back? How did you feel about the content that you were passing on to your students? Well, back in the 70s, the new Mormon history, of course, was just emerging. And so, you know, we had our approved lesson plans and we we stayed, we stuck to them. And I was certainly orthodox and uh, I didn't know as much uh, then as I do know now about the more new Mormon history. My students certainly weren't. I think the word is we were more open. We had more freedom. But I taught a class on uh, different religions, and I'd have uh, Buddhists come in and uh, RLDS speakers come in and uh, Pentecostals come in and Jehovah's Witnesses come in. It was, uh, And I'd teach classes like that at the Institute. It was very open. My gosh, I, I debated Walter Martin. He wrote a book called Kingdom of the Cults, and I had him come and speak to my students. That would never ever be allowed. It's it's a very different program today. It's 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 very Spartan and very uh, very different. So and we were there during the heyday. It was a wonderful time to be there in every sense of the word. I remember sitting at a banquet uh, honoring George Boyd's retirement, and I sat next to T. Edgar Lyon, and I remember asking him, "How come they had so many visions in the Kirtland Temple era and so forth?" And he gave me an answer that quite surprised me. He says, well, "If you have people fast three days and then have them drink beer on an empty stomach, you'll see." things. And I thought, what an interesting answer that was. <laughs> That's T. Edgar Lyon, huh? That was T. Edgar Lyon. You're listening to John DeLynn's interview with Grant Palmer from Mormon Stories. This is The Mormon Alchemist. Most apologetic responses to Grant Palmer's book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, focus less on the content and more on Palmer's motivation for writing it. 
at his disciplinary council, Palmer would hear a letter from the head of the church education system, who called him a hypocrite for having written the book while finishing his career as a CES employee. We'll pick up the interview as Grant Palmer explains how he came to write and publish the book and why he believes he acted with integrity in spite of the criticism. So when did you start uh, having questions or doubts or concerns? How did, you know, what, what becomes the kernel, a starting point for what later evolved into the, the book you wrote, um, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins? I've always been playful with ideas, always been curious and always you know, pursued the truth, always been interested in issues, always been free to share what I found with others. And uh, just in the course of my studies and preparations, you run on to things. So I was aware of a lot of the, the concerns and, uh, and, and questions about uh, the Mormon past. Like which ones? What were some of the ones you would have been aware of? Oh, the, the issues that they're talking about today, uh, the, the Book of Abraham to some extent, the, the different accounts of the first vision, the uh, finding of the papyri and the discussion of that. I began to study the uh, the Second Great Awakening uh, discourses by Methodists and others at camp meetings, and I was struck of how similar those sermons and the doctrine, the Protestant doctrine, and the form and the and the conversion pattern and, and how similar that was to the mainline preachers in the Book of Mormon, say, was starting with Enos and going right up through Alma too, and those discord, Benjamin and Amulek. And, and so, you know, I just put that on the shelf. I also, I knew there was a lot of Bible in the Book of Mormon, and the, and the more I studied the Bible and, and learned the Bible, the the more I saw that the Bible was in the Book of Mormon. I, I, all these people don't are not truly aware of how much Bible is in the Book of Mormon. But the thing that really triggered me was um, Mark Hoffman and the Salamander. What year was that? Letter. That was 1984. I'd met Mark Hoffman like four days before the bombings. And uh, when the bombings started, we were all opening our mailboxes with a stick and looking underneath our cars. We wondered if they were out to get historians or what. but, of course, Mark Hoffman was was doing all this work on documents that we later found out were, were made in his basement. You know, you went from, from the 60s through the 70s to the early 80s, um, you know, teaching seminary and institute, um, strong testimony to the church, and having some doubts and questions, but mostly putting them on the shelf, That's um, so to speak. That's correct. That would be true blue Mormon. How did you reconcile at the time or process that Hoffman had been able to have such close access to the to the first presidency and to even fool them? There, there was there was kind of a, a, a feeling that things were were trying to be kept in the in a black hole and not revealed. So this wasn't a crisis of faith for you at this point. No, uh, in the origins of no, the church. No, I was just curious. You were just yeah, curious. Just were curious. you excited? You were. Oh, I was very excited because I always liked to learn, and uh, I would ask a variety of people. I says, you know, what about this? And they'd say yes. Through generally, basically, they'd say, well, yes, we have some problems, but we don't. I don't think we have very good answers to it. That was kind of a general, but I, I talked to many of them over the years. So you were having, you were starting to dig into the stuff and starting to really have yeah. questions. But it's you were the starting- Salamander letter by Mark Hoffman that got me writing. Okay, so you started writing. And I wrote some papers under the name of a, a person named Paul Pry. The farms people like to make a big thing of that. There was there's no 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 big thing at all about that, really. Uh, okay, why uh, a pen name at all? 
I think at that point it was it was if you're going to raise questions and you're in CES that that was probably a dangerous thing to do. So you feared for your employment. A I, bit. I would say yes to some extent. And what? Who is the intended audience for these uh, articles? There, there wasn't any intended audience. It was just me, curious and valuing truth more than loyalty to a tradition, and be, and having curiosity that I wrote this mainly for them myself. And I send these papers out for some criticism. And like I said, they went all over the church. And so, were you guys ever just sitting there going, "Man, what do you think about this?" And what were the feelings and the sentiment that were being expressed behind doors by the CES employees that were plugged in to the issues? Well, and it the depended who they were. I mean, we we talk about B. H. Roberts' studies of the Book of Mormon came out about that time, you know, and we we discussed stuff like that, and it made some of people very uncomfortable. Others were were more had more curiosity. You know, we we weren't teaching this in the classroom. You understand, none of us were. Right, but. Uh, I never intended to publish anything of the Paul Pry until uh, I'd presented uh, the Paul Pry stuff to the BYU history professors. And uh, they says, well, why don't you take this one article and publish something on it? We'll help you write an introduction. So it was going to be an article that would be submitted somewhere. Mm-hmm. So these things were never published. They were never designed to be published at that point. Right. Real quick, what, what kept you from feeling the Holy Ghost and saying, you know, the church is true. I don't want to hurt people's testimonies. The brethren have told us what we need to think and feel and do. I'm not going to go and explore this stuff, and I certainly don't want to be spreading things that might damage or undermine people's faith. Why not, Grant Palmer, just leave it alone? Well, I'm one of those persons that you described at the front end of this interview. I have more curiosity than fear, and I have more interest in truth and loyalty to a tradition. To me, those are higher virtues. I've always been open sharing stuff. Now, during this time, I think it's important to say that I began to be conflicted enough that it was just weighing on my mind. What are the answers to this? This is an increasing question that I had. And I was teaching seminary, and I never talked about any of this, but I I just had so many questions that I, I needed to get some answers. So I went to my file leader, and I said to him, I am conflicted about what I'm doing in the classroom. And he was very gracious to me. Why was the classroom causing you conflict? As I began to look into priesthood, restoration, and the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and the content of the Book of Mormon, and uh, the first visions, and take a serious look at things, it reached a point where I've got to find some answers. These things are more serious than I thought they were initially. And... uh, I was conflicted enough. I says, I would feel more comfortable in going to the Salt Lake County Jail. And he granted me that. Unlike what farms would have you believe, this was really quite up front. Right. Not some cloak and I had a very honorable, wonderful 34-year career. The last 13 years was was at the Salt Lake County Jail. Had I not been allowed to go there— I probably could not have continued teaching and uh, would have quit. I felt very comfortable in what I was doing. And so I would go around and I says, look, I found all this stuff. And I'd go to all kinds of people I had respect for of all persuasions, unbelievers, people just like myself, colleagues, BYU professors, and say, is there an orthodox way out of these difficulties? It's really kind of like a minefield. It, it doesn't matter 
what you take a look at, there's going to be some adjustment to what we've been taught. What year did you say, okay, I'm going to start writing a book now? George Smith had encouraged me around 87, 88 to put something together. And, and I and I just kind of thought, well, okay, I'll kind of pursue this. I don't know if I'll turn it in. I don't know if they'll be interested. I don't know. And so about 94, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do some more research and see where this goes. And if, you know, I did the research up through around uh, 99. And then they were really pushing me to, to write a conclusion. Signature book was. And so I thought... Wow, I I don't really have orthodox answers to any of these foundational events, mm-hmm. and I I have to admit this is the way things seem to be. I felt that once I, as long as I was really honestly struggling to find a way out of these difficulties, that I was ethically justified in what I was doing. It was just my. I was writing a book, yes, but I didn't know how I was going to conclude this. Right. So when I've reached a point where I thought there's no way out of these difficulties, I've talked to all these people, and they don't have any better answers than, than, than I have, I submitted the conclusion and offered my resignation for the following June. What, what about the implications, as, you, as you're considering to publish this book, about what impact it might have on people's faith, on people's families, on the church itself? Yes, it's going to affect people, but uh, it's the honorable thing to do. It's only the truth is good enough for us LDS people. I mean, I can use slogans like that. I feel very comfortable with what I've done. Other people may fully understand everything I've said today and still think... I did an unethical thing, but I don't. Right. And most people who criticize me really don't know the story. This is the Church of Jesus Christ, and uh, and it just seems to me that we the time was has come to deal with this instead of just doing what we're doing. Can the only true church afford to tell the truth? I, I think the answer has to be yes. You're listening to the Mormon Alchemist podcast. Mormon Stories is known for thorough interviews that have enriched the progressive Mormon experience. You can find more than 500 episodes and support their work at mormonstories.org. We can't really understand the origins of Mormonism without understanding Joseph Smith's backstory. We'll get back to John Dolan's interview with Grant Palmer as they explore the personality and hobbies that turned a typical American teen into a modern religious icon. Well, Joseph was a very curious person. He had a very good mind and a very good memory. He seemed to be able to remember things that he read. It is utterly amazing to me how many three, four, five-word King James Bible phrases that are integrated in an ongoing revelation. But that, this is this is pretty impressive. There, there's hardly anybody in the church that could, could do that today. Maybe Neil Maxwell when he was alive. Maybe there's others. He grasps things. He's curious. He's not the quite the ignorant farm boy that we've portrayed him to be. And in the areas where he was most interested, that's where we see flect, reflected that material in the Book of Mormon. Uh, Joseph was uh, raised to be a, a, a visionary. He, his family is split religiously. His father is a, a, a universalist. His mother is leans more towards Presbyterianism. Uh, his father did a fair amount of drinking. So it's divided religiously. They don't have any money. 
They don't have any influence socially, economic, politically, and they don't even have a very high standing in the community in, in regards to their neighbors, partly because they're having visionary projects that are saying, you ought to see what I've seen. Let's go down and find a silver mine. Let's go over here and do this visionary project. When the gold plate story came out, it, they'd cried wolf one too many times and nobody paid much attention to it. So tell, tell us a little bit about these uh, gold digging or treasure seeking expeditions. The Smiths were involved in the treasure hunting almost from the time they moved there. They were doing treasure hunting at what today is called Camorra. They, they did it before the Golden Plate story, during the Angel Gold Plate story, and after the plates were retrieved. Was the gold actually find money and to get rich? Well, I think so. I mean, they, they claimed a kind of a second side, or, or the scriptural phrase for that is, we saw this by the eyes of our understanding. That's an important phrase. The LDS people today, if they read section 110, where he and Oliver Cowdery are seeing Jesus and Elijah and Moses, the very first verse is, and, and the eyes of our understanding were open. They're really not seeing anything, as you and I would use the term. They're perceiving. They're seeing it in their mind, so to speak. And so why would they go treasure-seeking to just see treasures in their mind? Because they, they would see them in their mind, and then the fact they believed they existed is when they went to dig for them. Okay, and, and did they ever find treasure? They never did. So it wasn't like they were trying to fool or fraud, defraud anybody. I don't think so. They really believed that they were seeing treasures in the mountains yes. and that they were going to find them if they did the right ritual and the right steps yes. to actually find them. And Joseph had the seeing gift better than the others, and so he was often the person who would point out where stuff was. We have statements that... Joseph privately told people that uh, he really couldn't see anything in that stone, but he would he'd make a little money. So, I mean, there was, a, there was a temptation there. He said he was tempted and did some things in his youth that he wasn't uh, particularly proud of. Maybe this was one of them. So you mentioned a stone. Well, what did a stone have to do with this treasure seeking? Well, Joseph said that he could look into the stone and see images. He could see where treasure was deposited and would then accordingly guide them to the spot. So was he the only one with a stone, or did other people have a stone? No, no. Samuel Lawrence had one. Sally Chase had one. Uh, the Whitmers had several. John and Jacob and David Whitmer had a stone. And uh, Joseph Sr. had stones. And uh, the most important stone, of course, the, uh, the one that he translated the Book of Mormon through, but he also used that same stone to see guardian treasures in the hills. Did they really believe that they were seeing things through these stones, or was it just fraud, you know, just charlatan sort of works? Or do we know? I think they uh, believe that Joseph Smith and Sally Chase and Sam Lawrence and some of them could actually see in the stone. I think every LDS person has to ask themselves that question, and I, I personally don't think they could see anything in those stones, but uh, I know LDS people who do. And during all this time, did everyone know that Joseph had seen a vision of God and Jesus, uh, as the traditional story goes, no, that he had a, been told to start the One True Church? Did, did he even did even his family know about the first vision at the time? No, not at all. There's no Nobody knew about it. So he didn't come back and tell everyone at any point during these 20s that he had... Not that we know. 
So there's no evidence of Joseph telling people that he had the first vision or was told to start God's One True Church or was called to start the Book of Mormon in the early to mid-20s. No, in fact, the family's uh, perception of the whole thing is that it was, it's all about uh, an angel, later named Moroni. Section 20 in the Doctrine and Covenants, he's called to the work by an angel. There's not called by God and Jesus. There's, that's quite different, of course, from what you hear in the, uh, the later versions of the first vision. So at least the people around Joseph are not engaging with him with any understanding of him having talked to God and Jesus, with him having no. the intent to start the one true church. This is just, mm-hmm. he's got friends and family, and they're doing superstitious stuff like a, a, a subset of people did. How do we get from the glass looking and, and seer stones and treasure digging to the Book of Mormon? Well, we don't know other than that the official story tells that he was contacted by a, an angel three nights in 1823. And they're really not telling that story outside of the family until 1827. Okay. So in September of 27, he he gets the plates. Then he gets persecuted, so he takes the plates back somehow. To takes them to Harmony, Pennsylvania, or, or concealed in a was Emma helping barrel him? of beans or something. Was Emma helping him? Was he, you know, did she see the plates? Do we know? She wanted to see them. In fact, she says she murmured because she couldn't see them. She would lift them, and they were under some kind of a wrapping or pillowcase. She never saw him, and uh, no one ever saw Joseph use the plates in the translation process. Not his scribes, not family, not relatives. So there was some heavy thing. Something. That could have been plates or whatever something else. Something plate-like, yes. Okay, so that, they're brought back to Harmony, and then the translation begins. What, what were the mechanics uh, of, the, of the quote translation based on the people who were in the room? But it was a stone in a top hat, and you'd put it in there, and you'd kind of cover the face, and the... The, the thinking is that he, he could read stuff off in the stone, but I, I don't think he could see anything in the stone. I think the sudden strokes of ideas that came into his mind is is uh, what he was dictating to so, his scribes. So if he had his face in a hat with the stone in the hat, why were the plates even necessary? Well, that's the question, and you have Nephite uh, prophets and historians uh, passing these hard to engrave plates down for centuries and generations and then he doesn't use them i think there's a there's an ode explanation here as to why they were not used so this got me in trouble it was during the hoffman era and it was in the newspapers and i was teaching senior students and every other week we had a question answer period they could put questions in and one of them is did joseph use the trans the plates in the translation process i says i don't think so the boy told his mother went right to the principal, went to his superior. Next thing I know, I was down in the church office building. That was the first thing that they said to me in the church office building. Well, we've never heard this before. We Here's the end sign, and he's using them. And they have a picture of him using the plates maybe two or three times a year in that magazine. And besides, we've never heard a general authority say that they they weren't used. And so I was on probation for a year, and then I got off probation. And But I remember talking to a historian at BYU, and I says, I, I can't tell you how frustrated I felt. I says, there I am in my, in my three file leaders there. And I says, I felt like on a scale of one to ten, they, they had their understanding of our Mormon past was about a three. And he says, oh, I think you're being far too generous. <laughs> you're listening to The Mormon Alchemist. This is Paul Malan. I started this project to help spread the best ideas in progressive Mormonism. You can keep in touch and contribute your ideas at mormonalchemist.com. One of the biggest questions in Mormonism is this. 
If Joseph Smith wasn't what he claimed to be, where did the Book of Mormon come from? In this segment, John DeLynn and Grant Palmer consider the possibilities. We'll pick up the story after the 116 pages are lost. If you're new to the story of Mormonism, you might want the context that comes from the complete interview. That's episodes 30 through 33 at mormonstories.org. So the manuscript, 116 pages get lost, Martin's fired. Why the big delay? Why didn't he just keep going, find another scribe and keep going? I wonder how Oliver Cowdery fits into all this and and why the delay? Well, Joseph said that when he lost the plates, he lost the Urim and Thummim. And then the angel gives him back the plates, but not the device to translate them with. So from there on, he uses the stone, the peep stone or seer stone. They translated from that stone the entire Book of Mormon we have today. But Oliver Cowder doesn't come on the scene until March of 29, you see. So Joseph is, I don't know what he's, he has about a nine-month period in between there to think about the book, maybe to streamline it, maybe to work out some plots. And in some ways, the loss of the 116 pages, while devastating on one, on the one hand, gave him a chance to start over again. Yeah. Apparently, uh, a preacher in Oliver Cowdery's town around this time wrote a very interesting book uh, called A View of the Hebrews. Uh, As I understand it, it was Oliver Cowdery's preacher who wrote this book, View of the Hebrews, that Oliver Cowdery would have learned about before he ever joined Joseph Smith. Well, he certainly could have. Uh, Ethan Smith wrote this novel, and the first edition sold out rather rapidly in 23, and then his second edition sold out pretty fast as well and this went all through new york this was a discussed book when you met somebody at the post office it's kind of like you and i discussing what's going on in the news and so bh roberts thought that joseph smith may have used the ethan smith's book as kind of a structural or an outline for his book but there's there's a number of simulators there's a christ type figure in moses there's uh, two classes of people those that are educated and industrial and those who are lazy and slothful and uh, and eventually the slothful uh, heathen arm of of the civilization overwhelms and destroys the the civilized portion there's a lot of things that catch your attention for sure when you look at the book. I, I don't look upon view of the Hebrews as something that Joseph used as an early uh, manuscript for the Book of Mormon. I, I don't see that. It's, it's, Ethan Smith was just one of many who were writing about that period, and those are the kind of ideas. They're all Israelites. Um, those kind of ideas were just in the environment and emerged, and Joseph seems to tap into that. So the Book of Mormon eventually uh, gets published. And in 1830, short- March of 1830. So by the time Cowdery left, which is in June of 29, Joseph has another nine months to refine the book, to make whatever corrections he wanted to make. We don't know how much of that went on, but from start to finish, the translation part of it or, or the dictation part of the book may have only lasted 90 days, but he's, you could make a case that he's, he is a three-year project. Right. Or if he starts thinking about the book after 1823, it's a six-year project. In a few chapters of your book, you basically talk about coincidences or parallels or odd similarities. So talk about at just a high level, you know, where you think the sources of the text of the Book of Mormon may actually have come from. All right. I, I think that 80% of the Book of Mormon came from sources right in Joseph Smith's backyard, so to speak. Farms likes to dwell on that 20% that we don't know where it came from, but I think we have a pretty good handle where 75 or 80% came. And I'd say it came from six 19th century sources. The first is the King James Bible, and we know what edition he's using. It's because it carries the errors in the Book of Mormon from that 
1769 edition or later printing of the King James Bible. I would say 22 to 25 percent of the Book of Mormon is from the from that King James Bible. So a fourth of the Book of Mormon is straight out, yeah. word for word, almost. I'd say from- another fourth or 25% comes from the evangelical camp meeting procedures, forms, conversion patterns, uh, the things they condemn, the, the, the concept of God and man, and uh, patterns that you'd find at, a, at, a, at a, a revival tent meeting. And like I say, the main preachers in the Book of Mormon from Enos on up through Alma 2 seem to follow that pattern rather closely, using not only the phraseology, but the theology, the, the baptism, conversion, four-step pattern that the Methodists, especially Methodist stuff, by the way. And I I'd say that's another 25% of the book. So there's 50%. Okay. The last 25 to 30% comes from the following three or four sources. I think there's Smith family biography, dreams, certain things that seem to relate. Joseph Smith's dreams and the Lehi dream seems very, very close. And it's not just that one dream. There's several dreams of Joseph Sr. that seem to end up in the Book of Mormon. American Antiquities, which we just mentioned, a view of the Hebrews and things that were being found and parallels that way. I also think, I think someone needs to do more than Dan Vogel has done in the influence of the battle strategies of the War of 1812 especially when the British and the Indians uh, team up to fight the, the United States soldiers. You'll find certain strategies of that war that seem to end up in from Alma 45 on up through Helam and on up through early 3rd Nephi. And then the anti-Masonic feeling, which is especially strong from 1826 to 1830. Andrew Jackson ran for president in 1828, He was a Mason. Most people don't know that. And if you read the newspapers in the campaign of 1828, it's just full of what's going to happen should a Mason get in the White House and how he will corrupt the lower judges. And that's exactly what you find in the Book of Mormon in Helaman. This is all something that... You don't have to look in an ancient place to find out. So I think that we can make a pretty good case that 75-80% of the book comes is a 19th century source. Basically, you're saying that Joseph had a great memory, a great imagination, and authored the Book of Mormon as a, as a social sponge and a historical sponge. And it, it, it's a work of fiction is basically kind of where you're sort of saying this all leads up to. Yes, it could be inspired. I mean, let's face it. Those uh, I think uh, when, when I read the Book of Mormon as a young missionary, I felt the spirit there. I think what's happening there is you're, you're at a revival but haven't been told. I think that's what's going on, and that gives the warmth and the spirit of the Book of Mormon. Uh, I think that brings people to Christ, and that's the true value of the Book of Mormon. It does bring people to Christ. It causes them to confront their sins and to to say, I'm not doing as well as I probably ought to. I think that's why Joseph wrote the Book of Mormon. It's just like the title page says. This book is written to bring people to Christ. I think it's worked rather well. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that that feeling means it's historical, has historicity? Well, I don't think so, but uh, it does bring people to Christ. And maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is designed to do, is to bring people to Christ. But this puts Joseph in a bind of, of claiming that he was doing something that he wasn't, of committing a fraud, basically, of, of saying he was translating an ancient record when he really wasn't, um, of uh, claiming to have had visions with angels when maybe he didn't. So how do you reconcile him 
having a sincere desire to bring people to Christ, but being willing to mislead and deceive people. I, well, I think I think that Joseph Smith thought it was okay to use questionable means to bring about a glorious end, in this case, bringing people to Christ. The sincere part of it, I think, and I'm willing to give Joseph this amount of credit, is that he may have thought that what ideas were coming into his mind, sudden strokes of ideas. I don't think he's reading off a seer stone. I think these ideas are coming into his mind. Why he's using the hat, I don't know if it's to persuade people who already believe he can see that way or whether he's using it for concentration purposes or some kind of prop. I don't know. But I think ideas are coming into his mind and whatever comes into his mind, he dictates to his scribe and he believes he's accessing an ancient American civilization but I don't think he is. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the evidences or one of the the challenges uh, that Farms and Fair have to continually defend is all the anachronisms that are found in the Book of Mormon, the horses and elephants and steel and barley. And, and, and yes, Fair and Farms have uh, apologetic answers for that. Uh, where they say steel may not be steel, and someone once found a horse somewhere in a tar pit, and you know, but- wrong time period. But the answers farms are giving these days are so weak that they're actually causing people who go there to say, "This is our best shot at this," and are starting to look deeper, and then they're they're the, the source of their doubts are beginning with the answers farms provides. Right, that's a tough pickle that they're in. The march of the evidence has not been very kind to the church during the last 35, 40 years. Now we got DNA, and you know they're having to spin that and deal with that. And the, we've got all of these other issues. We got the Book of Abraham. We now have two new accounts of the first vision. We got this papyri that we found. The light. We've got all these things that we didn't used to have to defend, and the farms is trying to defend it all. And the bag is getting so dang heavy. There's a lot of people that, that that's getting in the in the way of the message of the church, and I think that has some direct relationship to conversion rates are going down, have been since about 1990. That's the historian and author Grant Palmer exploring the puzzle of the Book of Mormon with Mormon Stories host John DeLynn. This is the Mormon Alchemist podcast. In just a few seconds, we'll get back to the interview, where they take a closer look at the testimonies of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, testimonies that, famously, were never recanted in spite of bad blood and later apostasy. But right now, I want to encourage you to check out the Sunstone Symposium this July at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. It's not even a question of whether you're cut out for Sunstone. If you're listening to this podcast, you'll love it. Everything you need to know is online at sunstonemagazine.com. Now let's get back to the interview and discover how the testimonies of the three and eight witnesses helped create the first vision story most Mormons revere today. We didn't talk about the eight witnesses and the three witnesses. What are they actually telling people they did experience? The key to understanding the witnesses to the Book of Mormon is their mindset. And And the mindset is second sight. Their mindset is you can see things by the by the eyes of our understanding, and there's all kinds of examples of where they go inside the hill Camorra and they see these artifacts. And if you look at how they describe their testimony, it's an awful like like the way they're describing what they see inside the hill Camorra. 
We talk about their witness or testimony is found in the Book of Mormon, and it's very impressive. We say, well, they never denied their testimonies. It's not that they're changing their story. It's that you find out the rest of their story. Okay. When you start looking into their lives, these people joined a lot of groups. Martin Harris joined four or five groups before Mormonism and six or seven groups after Mormonism. He would say when he joined Shakerism that that he saw the role of the scroll, and it was more impressive than the seeing the plates. He was also one of the witnesses of Gladden Bishop in 1835 in Ohio. Gladden Bishop claimed to have, have uh, not only had the, the artifacts that Joseph Smith had, you know, the breastplate, the, the Urim and Thumb, the Leohona, and all of that, but Gladden Bishop says the angel had given him a, a large and small crown of Lehi, and guess who his witnesses is going to be? Martin Harris. Hmm. These guys never deny anything. That's they're, 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 they're spiritual gypsies. <laughs> right. Some of them, the witnesses are. So the Book of Mormon is published. Uh, the church is founded. And as I understand it, for several years, no one joins the church based on a first vision story. And, no. and no one's even told a first vision story involving God and Jesus until... The first mention of it is in, I think, section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it says he had a forgiveness of sin. Right. And then if you read the 32 account, it's forgiveness of sin. And then if you read the 35 account, it's a forgiveness of sin. So, so Joseph, tell us about the 32 account. The 32 and 35 accounts were found about the same time, 1965. And uh, this surprised the church because all we thought we had was the 38 account, which is in the Pearly Great Price, and the Wentworth letter, which is 1842. So in 1832, Joseph goes to his journal, writes mm-hmm. his own first vision story yep. with his own hand. Yeah, there's no revival. There's no there's no asking which church is right. He seems to already know that. He's like his mother before him, they believed that everybody was in apostasy and he already had reached that conclusion. He first of all he doesn't say it was God the Father and Jesus that appeared to him. No, right? just one being occurs and, and that's another key to it. Whatever Joseph Smith is working on at the time in his life reflects what Joseph believes about God. All before this, for twelve years it's Moroni, it's an angel, it's the Book of Mormon, and nothing else. That's the missionaries. That's what everybody understands, including his own family. Now, all of a sudden, when he gets in trouble with his witnesses of the Book of Mormon in 38, so in 1838, he shifts it to the first vision pretty, is the call. Pretty much a third of the high leaders of the church leave the church after Kirtland sort of crumbled. Yes. We have the Martin Harris leaving. All the witnesses uh, All leave. the Calgary leaves. The Whitmer brothers leave. Why are they all leaving? I think what really pulls the trigger is this meeting in the Kirtland Temple where Harris gets up and says, no. Nobody saw the golden plates with their natural eyes. Martin Harris says that. About all of the witnesses. In 1838. Yep, right in the Kirtland Temple. And that blows three apostles right out of the church. And at that point in time is when Joseph decides to rewrite his history. And he starts out, as everyone knows in the church, owing to the many reports. I'm going to set the record straight. And it's in a time of trouble with his own leadership. And that's when the story moves from being called by Moroni to being called by God and Christ in the 38 account of the first one. I think the pattern here is what's important. Just as the first vision, he goes from a forgiveness experience to um, he's getting a call not from Moroni but from God. There's, instead of one God, there's two gods. The priest does the same thing. It starts out that he's getting a command of God through the Spirit in 29 and 30 in the, do- in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
And then it, in 32, it moves to vision. It's more of a visionary thing where angels are in attendance. And then in 35, these, they become resurrected beings. They're named Peter, James, and John. And it gets a whole lot more impressive. All four of these have the same pattern. The uh, angel gold plate story, the uh, witnesses to the Book of Mormon, the priesthood restoration, and the first vision. That is, they evolve. They become more impressive they become more literal, physical, and yes, they become more miraculous. Like a, a federal judge who's a good friend of mine said, he says, uh, to reading my book, he says, my gosh, he says, if a, if a witness like that came before me and told those four visions and, and each time told a more impressive one, we call that the testimony is impeached and it's set aside. And mm-hmm. that's the problem I think the modern church has to deal with. You know, I read the book a couple years ago when I was a seminary teacher in Seattle, and there was one problem I have with the book. Um, it it seemed like what you were saying was, here's all this circumstantial evidence, therefore any rational, reasonable mind is going to come to the conclusion that the Book of Mormon was a fraud. But I don't think you've proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Book of Mormon is false. No, and I haven't answered the question for the reader. The reader has to make that decision. I'm just showing what I think happened and where his sources are from, and and then the reader will have to take it from there. Between a rock and a hard place Whether I like it or not, I'm digging my grave Friends ask me why I choose to stay Between a rock and a Grant Palmer has said he wrote An Insider's View to increase faith, not diminish it. Apologists aren't so sure, but whatever the intent, the historical details he compiled are accepted by most historians today, both in and out of the LDS Church. In the next section of the Mormon Stories interview, John DeLynn and Grant Palmer talk about the role of Jesus Christ in a way forward for Mormonism. But for all the things I've lost, there are a few I've gained. Most came between a rock and a hard place. How did you first hear about the court? Got a letter from the stake president up here. Okay. You got a letter from the stake president that said... I'd had a couple of preliminary discussions with the bishop and the stake president, and they got a number of complaints, both within the stake and outside of the stake, meaning the rest of the world, that this book had done some damage to faith, is the way the stake president put it to me. That's why they're holding the court. When you had these interviews with your bishop and stake president, did you ever discuss the the merits of of your book, the content matter of your book? They're never really interested in the truth claims of the book, even at the, the church court. They divide the high council up six to defend the church, six to defend me. None of the six that were to defend me had read the book. A high councilman from my ward didn't even know I'd written a book. So they, it wasn't about the book. It was about whether you're orthodox. And in that sense, it was a Galileo trial. I mean, when Galileo went before his inquisitors, they, they weren't interested in whether you could actually see moons around Jupiter through his telescope. They were only interested if he was orthodox. And that's the way it remains to this day. They just want to know if you're orthodox. It was long. It was exhausting. And I tried to answer the best I could. And... Uh, and the verdict was disfellowship. Disfellowshipment, yes. And were you devastated or? No, I think that was about what I expected. Has it been hard to be disfellowshipped for you? Has it been devastating? Has it been not so bad? No. In fact, uh, 
This gets quite personal, but I think I'll say at least this much. Uh, After my court, I went to sleep, and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I I was just laying there, and I just felt the strongest feeling, just like it went right down into my soul. It was the Spirit of God is all I can describe it as. And then I got another shot that was even deeper and lasted longer. I felt his presence very strongly ever since that court and it's taken the sting out of it pushing me to trade my guilt for grace well I ain't getting younger now well signature book thought this would be a, a big read for beginning college students because it it took everything from the last 40 years and kind of put it in one book it has pictures and it's written for a broader audience and i think that's the true take on the book but it's also had appeal to people that have felt a great deal of guilt for for not feeling comfortable with the church not necessarily they go out and sin because of it but just they felt relieved yes the anti-mormons have run with it and so is the rlds Community of Christ, they're using it as their textbook in Graceland University right now. Did people start writing you? Yes, they, they did. Uh, in fact, I would say I've had uh, well over a 1,000 people in, since the book came out three and a half years ago write me, email me, call me on the phone, come and see me. Two inmates, white-collar inmates, said, my gosh, uh, if Joseph Smith can have all those problems, that gives hope for us. Uh, people say, you've, you've destroyed my faith. Uh, you, get, you get it all. It's it's a fair question to say we we know that people have left over your book. We know people have left the church at least it, it became a, a important component in them leaving. So uh, a church obviously regardless of whether it's God's one true church or not is going to try and preserve itself. In in some ways I I think they want to go slow. They don't quite know how to deal with this. They don't have a very good answer for it. At the same time, uh, they're losing a certain amount of credibility both within the church and outside of the church by not dealing with these things. Books like mine, but especially the Internet, is bringing all of this stuff to anyone who wants to know's attention. You can know an awful lot about what's really going on in the Mormon past if you choose to find out. The church is hemorrhaging, and the question is, is how do you stop the bleeding? Well, one of the ways is you get a guy like Richard Bushman and have him put a book out there. And I'll give Bushman credit where he's correct, but Bushman is is not into deep analysis. He, he brings us right up to the cliff on some of these issues, and then he kind of fades away. And And I think it is a step in the right direction for openness. But they think they see the practical necessity. Things are opening up. People are starting to understand, and a certain number are leaving. And I, I wish they'd stay in and help promote the kind of experience we'd like to have instead of just leaving. It seems like their hands are tied. If they suppress it, they're digging their own graves in the long term, or at least uh, digging the grave for their credibility and for a, a, a healthy portion of the church membership that are intelligent or inclined towards uh, a curiosity or studying, they're going to lose those people. But if they come clean and pull a reorganized church and admit their frailties, they're going to lose 75% of their membership. So what, you know, do you, do you, have you even tried to process yes. how you would make this change? I'm glad it's not me it has to make that decision. <laughs> Every time the, the church makes a move of accommodation of one degree or another, the fundamentalists rub their hands with glee and they get new converts. 
So you don't have any good suggestions? You just think it's a tough situation? I think it's their call, and I wish them all the luck in the world. But I think the honorable thing to do is to deal with this and move on. Every organization has a history. And I think my one suggestion is to just don't make any grandstanding. Just quietly move in the direction of a more Christ-centered experience. It seems like the premise in your Incomparable Jesus book is that Jesus necessarily isn't the focus of our worship these days sometimes. I, you know, I don't wish to be adversarial about it. I just think that we can improve in that area greatly. And if you break down the meetings, the sacrament meeting is uh, is designed to, to remember him, the sacramental prayers. And yet we, we, we mention Jesus Christ in the sacrament service, but we don't talk about his life and ministry very much. We drop his name. We close in the name of Christ. Our hymns, sacrament hymns, are usually centered around Christ. But the preaching and the teaching is where it starts to break down, I think. It's very easy for three months of sacrament meetings to go something like this. Well, this week we're going to talk about food storage. And the next week we'll have something on genealogy. And the next week we'll have a missionary report. And the next week we'll have something on the primary. And the next week will be Mother's Day. And the and the week after that we'll have Joseph Smith or something about... Or the uh, priesthood or, or one priesthood. church. Or, yeah. or the importance of ordinances. Yeah. And, or Right. And so you stand back three months have gone by and you say, what happened to... Jesus Christ here, and he <laughs> fell through the cracks. That's what happened to him. Right. In the last nine years, they've had the teachings of modern prophets. And I, I added those lessons up for the first eight years. It's in the Incomparable Jesus. It's 192 lessons, and uh, I only found about 20 of those out of 192 that directly relate with Jesus Christ. If you ask LDS people, active LDS people, tell me about the briefest overview of Joseph Smith's ministry. They say, well, 18, 20, 23, 27, 29, 30, that's New York. And then he went to Ohio, Missouri, Illinois, and he's martyred. Do that for Jesus. Right. <laughs> see, what, see what you get. Right. We're talking about active LDS. And they'll say, well, let's see. He was born in uh, Bethlehem, <laughs> and at uh, 12, he went down to the... <laughs> They, they really can't say he had a ministry in Galilee, they went to the upper Gentile area, then he went down to Judea, over to Priya, and then Holy Week. It's just that simple, but they, they can't do that. <laughs> right. And that, there's a reason for it, I think. Yeah. In lieu of our difficulties with the foundational claims, this would be a this would be the direction I would like to see the church move, and our members can help that out, it seems to me. Why have you abandoned the the validity or the truthfulness or the historicity of, of the Mormon origins, but you've clung to Christ? Yes, that's a common statement by people. If you applied the same test to Jesus as you do Joseph, uh, you'd have the same result. I, I respectfully disagree with that. I, I've seen the literature. I've read the literature. I, I, don't, I don't agree. First of all, I would say we have a plethora of documents on Joseph Smith to evaluate him. We have just archives full of material. What do we have about Jesus? We, well, we have a few secular historians and, and who mentioned that Jesus lived, not much about him. We have the four Gospels. We do not have is any interviews of him healing lepers or please tell me your account of seeing the resurrected Christ. We don't have that. What we've got is the four Gospels. So I don't know that you can even begin to apply a historical test to Jesus uh, like you can with Joseph Smith. One of the church problems we have in the LDS church is that 
we've tied so much of our faith to historical events or alleged historical events. If you want to be baptized, you've got to believe in the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon. You've got to believe in the first vision. You've got to believe in the priesthood restoration. You've got to believe in, in, in these different items. And I think that as time is going on and, and those things are becoming more and more up in the air and questionable, I think we ought to evaluate our membership on how central they are spiritually and morally in Christ and uh, and not by these evolving uh, controversial increasingly impressive unique and miraculous accounts that we have in the in the in the uh, our church tradition so why why not just uh, join your local unitarian universalist church why not become an evangelical why have you remained and and desire to remain within the church well remember i mentioned to you earlier in our interview that i've always had a little bit of the reformer in me the church is good to me in my youth a lot of who I am is because of those teachings. These are my people. I, they go way back. I would like to see a more Christ-centered experience. If that doesn't happen, then there's not a lot over there for me. And in a few years, if nothing changes, I probably will drop out. But for all the things I've lost, there are a few I've gained. Most came between a rock and a hole. It's been almost 15 years since an insider's view of Mormon origins was published. And with the internet making it increasingly easier to access new research, Mormons across the world have had to adapt to a version of our history that isn't as romantic as we thought. So let's wrap up this episode with a question. What will Mormonism look like in another 15 years? Will there be room in the church for Mormons like Grant Palmer? What about Mormons like you and me? Well, it's very devastating. It's the hardest thing that ever happened in my life. It was harder than my three surgeries of cancer and six months of chemo and six weeks of radiation. It was harder than losing my sweetheart wife in 92, who I love dearly. This has been devastating to a person who's gone through this journey. And many people will go through this journey I would hope that the church leaders could ease that burden somewhat and find a way to make it a little easier and and open the umbrella and discuss this and somehow move on. And I just think that we're you could be mature enough in a church that we can there's room for people like me in it. As more and more of this comes out, they've got to be a little more accommodating or they can not enlarge the umbrella and just shut us out. Right. That's a decision they have to face. That's their decision. I think it's not an easy one, and I do empathize with their decision. For me, it's not that difficult. I think you just tell the truth and let the consequences follow. Yeah. And there will be consequences, and I think they feel responsible for those consequences, but there's consequences now. And and the fact of the matter is that we have families that are being torn up, and this will go through much of the church. I just think it's the honorable thing to do. I'm going to keep mentioning that word. It's the only honorable thing to do is to deal deal with this stuff. I think I would just quietly become a more Christ-centered church. I wouldn't make any grandstand statements, and I think most of the church members will simply follow. And I think it'll be a better church for it. When you lay me down to rest in peace 
Set my tombstone flat on top of my grave So forever my body will lay between A rock and a Grant Palmer's book is called An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. You can find the original four-hour interview and support John DeLynn's work at mormonstories.org. Come say hello and discover the artists behind the music in this episode at mormonalchemist.com. But for all the things I've lost, there are a few I've gained. Most came between a rock and a hall.